just off the top, I would love if we could just go there. Is that okay? If we just kind of go there today authentically and you can bring your real self into the space. And so just so you know a little bit about me, my, my wife is over here. Her name is Shelby. I have two little boys, Griffin and Shepard. My wife and I actually met at the University of Georgia. No one here. Okay, good. Um, it sounds like good for me here. Uh, Miles told me I'd be fired if anyone ever barks in this church. So, so uh, don't start now, please. But no, stop. I thought you liked me. Um, but uh, like Cheryl said, this has been a journey. And so today's message, we're going to continue in Acts. I just want to be, uh, ask your permission, I should say. If, forgive me if it feels very personal because it's been more of a sermon that I've been living rather than I'm giving or one that I'm preaching. This is, I just believe that God uses lives to make his word come alive. And I really believe that the miracles that we experience in this life point to one message, Jesus wins. And so what I'm going to do today, just so you know, I'm going to be faithful to preach the text that we are arriving at today, but also I want to let you know that it will get personal, and I hope it does for you as well. And so we've been in this series, Acts, looking at the early church, and one of the things that I've noticed over and over and over again is how in these moments where it feels like the kingdom of light is advancing, all of a sudden we're taking a shift to where the darkness fights back. And so I don't know about you, but whenever I look up there and I see Jesus wins on the wall, part of me believes, why is it then that I feel like I'm always losing the battle with darkness? Does anybody else feel like that? Like I know for a fact, Jesus wins. He is Lord of all. Yet, why do I consistently feel like there is this uphill, never-ending battle for my faith all the time? It feels like darkness is winning. And I look around at the world and I wonder, what does that mean for us? And I think there's this tension and there's this vision of what do we do when the darkness fights back? Because I've noticed that it produces in me this victim mentality as opposed to living from the victory that Jesus died and rose for me to live in. And so I just want to ask the question for many of you today, what if that pain, that trial, that situation, that circumstance that you are walking in right now is not proof that the enemy is winning, but it's actually proof that he already lost. What if Jesus allows us, entrusts us with suffering to bring about his eternal glory through our lives? What if the thing that you are walking through today is not proof that the enemy is winning your story, it's proof that Jesus already won? Because what the enemy meant for evil, I love that Cheryl just said that, that what the enemy meant for evil, God can turn to good. And so the title for the sermon, if you need one, it's called Worthy of Suffering. It's after this interesting phrase we're going to read here in just a moment, where the apostles, after getting absolutely beaten, say that they considered it themselves worthy of suffering, disgrace for his name. How can you leave being beaten up and imprisoned and say, I'm going to rejoice. That's exactly what the apostles did. They're going to give us the roadmap for how we live under persecution. So if you have your Bible, now is the time. Hold it up. All over this room, all over Birmingham, all over Lake Martin, any location that we were at Huntsville, I want to ask you this question. Leave your Bible up if you have never broken a bone. I'm trying to just see who the favored ones are in the room, who we should hang out with and let drive us around. Okay, everybody turn with me to Acts chapter 5. 
I guess you guys weren't considered worthy of suffering. It's a joke. So before we kind of get into this, I want to make sure that we remember where we were at. So as you're turning there, I'm just going to give you kind of the recap. So if you remember what happened last week, last week the apostles were arrested and they're put in jail. And so the Sanhedrin, which are the elders of Israel, get together to try to decide what to do with the apostles who are in jail because they've been teaching about this Jesus. While they're deciding what to do, an angel appears to the jail and lets the apostles out. Now, everybody's freaking out. They have no idea. The guards are really upset because the only explanation is the one the Sanhedrin does not want to hear. It's that the supernatural happened. An angel let them out. And so they're stressed out until someone comes in and says to them, hey, those apostles, they're back out teaching at the temple courts. So the Sanhedrin goes and gets them and they bring them in front of this court. Think of like the Supreme Court of Israel. They're the ones deciding what to do with these apostles. And so before we read these words, we're going to start in Acts chapter 5, verse 28. I just feel like we need to pause, if that's okay. So I'm just going to pray. Just maybe open your hands and receive this before we read these words. This is the word of God. So my prayer, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit come, is that the truths from this passage would remind us that you are fighting a battle for us. The insights from this passage, God, I pray right now in Jesus' name, that they would never let us adopt a victim mentality in this life ever again. I pray in Jesus' name that the responses of these apostles would be our battle cry to a lost, dark, and broken world. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 5, verse 28. If you're there, say, I'm there. All right, let's do it. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. He said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then... He addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them, 
They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Wow. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. What an amazing story. So we're going to walk through it kind of verse by verse. We don't have time to go through all of it. We're going to go back up to verse 28. So verse 28 says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, which this is the first instance in the Bible where Jesus's name is avoided. It's because they knew there was power in that name. He says, yet you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. See, what the Sanhedrin is doing is they're trying to justify their killing of Jesus using a Levitical law. They're like, you can't blame that. His blood is not on our hands. He continues and says, this is what Peter responds with, excuse me, we must obey God rather than human beings. Think about this. We must obey God rather than human beings. You know that word obedience is always in reference to authority? It's always meaning like, Who has the authority over your life? And what they're saying is, I will obey what God asked me to do, even if it breaks your law. I'll also not obey what you tell me to do if it breaks God's law. This is a phrase of authority. So maybe for us in this life, it feels like we are losing the battle with darkness because, and this is point number one, our obedience is to humans when it should be to God. Maybe, just maybe, our obedience is actually to humans when it should be to God. So let me just ask you this question. Who has your immediate yes? Is it a friend? Is it a coworker? Is it your boss? Is it that political party? Is it that cause? Is it that issue? Who is it? Let me ask it this way. Who is it that when something happens in your life, you go to first? I think a lot of us, when something happens in our life, what do we do? We immediately ask everyone in our lives what's going on and what we should do, right? And we're like, you have that one friend that will finally be like, have you asked God? And you're like, actually, no, I have not. Who is it that has your immediate yes? Because right here, it's all about obedience. And for me in my life, I know some miserable Christians. And I think they're so miserable because they're trying to believe in God without actually obeying God. For so many times, I think we don't realize this, but in the early church, people were obedient unto death, that our church was built on the back of martyrs. And they said this phrase, and I think it could be a banner cry for your life as well. We obey God, not human beings. And they would say this as they would look at a cross they're about to be hung on. They would say this as they looked at the jaws of a lion. They're about to engulf them in the Colosseum. They would say, we obey God. We don't obey humans. We obey God. I think for so many of us, man, we won't even say the name of Jesus. We're like the Sanhedrin. We won't even say the name of Jesus out of fear for social rejection, let alone be bold enough to be obedient to God unto death, like so many of the people who built this church in the beginning. And so why is it that our tendency is always to be on the edge of our seat to obey somebody else, but not God? The reason why I'm making this point, the reason why I think it can be so important for you is because, let me just tell you from experience, it's really hard to believe that you are losing the fight for your faith when at the end of the day, you lay your head down on the pillow and you know without a shadow of a doubt, I obeyed God. I obeyed God in this decision. I followed him. So that's why point number one, once again, is our obedience is to humans when it should be 
to God. And now Peter's about to unleash one of my favorite gospel presentations in the entire Bible. Pay attention to how he preaches the gospel to this group. Verse 30, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you hanged by, you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now pay attention really closely to what's happening right here. He looks at the elders of Israel, and he says, the God of our ancestors, meaning the God of the Bible. That God raised Jesus from the dead, the same Jesus who you won't even mention by name, and the same Jesus that you hung on a cross. He raised him to the right hand of God. This is the position of authority. So he raised him as prince, and savior. What do those two words mean? So prince, think of it this way. Prince is like the originator of life. It's like the sustainer of life. It means that Jesus is the one who ordered the whole universe and established all truth. It means that Jesus is the one that hung every star in space. He's the one who paints every sunset at night in the sky. And he's the one who gives you your very next breath. He's looking at the elders of Israel and he's saying, he did this so that he might bring Israel to repentance and to forgive sins. Notice the shift change there, did you see that? It was like all past tense and all of a sudden it goes to bring and to forgive, why? It's because Peter's looking the elders in the eyes and saying, he wants to forgive you. So think about it this way, don't miss this because this also applies to us. He's saying, yes, you are guilty of this man's blood but now that blood can cleanse you. Yes, you are guilty. You nailed his hands to a tree, and now those hands are wide open to receive you. Not only that, the instrument of death, the Roman cross, the ultimate symbol of pain, of destruction, of judgment, of destruction. What's, I mean, when I, you're thinking about the cross, you're thinking about hell. That symbol now is the symbol to heaven. It's the way to eternal life. It's the way to salvation. You hung him on that cross. And not only are we saying this, we're witnesses of these things, but so is the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a weird phrase? I got to know where he's like, so the Holy Spirit also witnessed this. What he's saying is God's message. This is God's message, not my message. And God's message will go out. We are witnesses of these things. And I just got to say this. Uh, I don't want to say this, but I got to say this. This message applies to us. And what I mean by that is Hebrews 6 says that if you reject the message of Jesus, it's like you are crucifying the Son of God all over again. And so I just need some of you to hear this, that until you plead the blood of Jesus, his blood is actually on your hands, but he's inviting you to a way of life that's better. And so when you hear that, I think a lot of us, our natural response is <clears throat> frustration, anger, he shouldn't be like that. Notice the response of the Sanhedrin. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious, and wanted to put them to death. Now, stop for a second. Do you remember a few weeks ago when Miles preached a sermon on Acts 2, and it was the first sermon that Peter preaches? Do you remember what happens? It's like he's in the middle of talking, and what happens? They tell him to stop because it says they were cut to the heart with conviction. They're like, what must we do? And Peter responds by saying, repent and be baptized in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, here the word furious is really hard to translate from Greek. You know what it really means? Cut to the heart with rage, not conviction. 
So in fact, if you have a King James Bible out right now, the King James Version, first of all, you're more spiritual than all of us. Congratulations. But second of all, it says that. It says they were cut to the heart. The point I'm trying to make is I think Luke was trying to show us the response to the gospel message. He's trying to reveal to us that either A, you will be cut to the heart with conviction and it will cause you to repent, or you will be cut to the heart with rage. That word rage is just an absolute refusal to believe. But then Gamaliel stands up, a Pharisee, and who's Gamaliel? Gamaliel is this famous guy who is the grandson of Hillel. He also, by the way, fun fact, was probably the rabbi or the teacher to Saul, who you probably know as Apostle Paul. This guy Gamaliel stands up and has this unbelievable moment of, I would say, logic in his argument. And he says, you remember all these cults and all these people that would come before us? You remember Thutis? Remember Judas the Galilean? Remember the following they, that, that they built up? Remember all of that that happened? What happened when they died? Oh, the movement just ended. The movement dispersed. What if, what if this Jesus is actually the Messiah? And he says in verse 38, therefore, in this present case, I invite you, advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to fight, stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God because their leader, Jesus, is dead. If he really is the Messiah, you'll be fighting God. And so the point number two of why it feels like we are losing this fight with the enemy, point number two is this. Our fight is political when it should be biblical. Oh, this is a tough one to, I'm going to do. I'm going to try, okay? Our fight is political when it should be biblical. Why was the Sanhedrin cut to the heart with rage? It was because of a threat to political power that they had. And so before you write this off and say, oh, I would never respond like that. I would respond obeying God. Okay, well, what happens when you feel a threat to your power? What happens when you feel a threat to your kingdom that you have on this earth, a threat to your rights, your property, your stuff, your things? What happens when you feel that? There's this rage that kind of comes up in all of us, right? So I uh, personally, being the fact that I don't do this very often, I don't want to step in the landmine that is politics. Uh, can we all agree and just say, thank you, you won't do that today? Um, I don't want to do that, but I have to be faithful to my first point and obey God. And I have to look at this, and this is definitely a political argument. So can we just agree that politics have become a religion for some people? Okay, uh, some of you agree. Here's, what, here's my definition of it. You can tell that politics is becoming your religion when you care more about the kingdom than the king. So when you start caring about all the things of the kingdom without actually submitting to King Jesus. Think about this. We want in our secular society today, we want all the things that Jesus offers. We want love, we want peace, we want patience, we want joy, we want all prosperity, we want all these things flourishing right now, right? We just don't want to submit to the way God says to do it, right? This is what it means for politics to slowly become your religion. You don't even realize it, but the point I'm trying to make is not that. The point I'm trying to make is what happens here in the story. And so I think it's easy for us to look around at the world and begin to blame a bunch of other people. You look around the world, you're like, man, this is all going worse and worse and worse, and there's so many issues and so, many, so much pain, and there's so, so much strife, and, and next thing you know, you start looking around, and as a Christian, you're like, what am I supposed to do? Like, can I even shop at Target these days, right? Like, that was a landmine. I should not have stepped in. That was, for, that was personal. Um, but the whole point I'm trying to make is you're wrestling with all these things. What do I do? What do I do? Bring it back to this book. Here's what happens to so many of us. It's easy to be staring at your phone and forget these pages. It's so easy to forget the fact that God has given us a way that's actually not the way we might think. 
And so when our argument stays political, it stays about them or them or them, but bring it back to here because here's the truth. Some of us are fighting God and we don't even know it. There's truth in here that is life-giving and life-freeing and we have an invitation. So I just want to use what Gamaliel did. Notice how his, his argument started political, but it ended biblical. So he starts by talking about Thutis and he starts talking about Judas. But then at the end, what does he do? He's talking to the Sanhedrin. These are the elders of Israel, which means they know their Bible. And what does he say? You know that Bible that we always preach and read and think about? And you know all those prophecies? He's essentially saying, what if Jesus really is the Messiah? What if the Bible is actually true here in this man's life? What if he's right? And all of a sudden they're like, oh man, yeah, maybe we should let these guys go. Because what if this Bible is true? So my whole point is really, when you start arguing about things with people, bring the conversation back to the Bible. What does this really say? How am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to treat people? And so maybe your argument, it feels like we're losing because we're, we're so focused on the political and we should be focused on the biblical. Everyone okay? Am I going to get in trouble from the elders, you think? Or are we good? Okay. Go vote. I love America. Verse 40. Let's go. Verse 40 says this. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I don't know if you know that word flogging, but there's this ritual of punishment. You would take 13 lashes to your front and 26 lashes to your back. And the symbolic nature is that 40 lashes would mean that you would die. So you are beaten within an inch of death. That's what it means to be flogged. But look at the response of the apostles. Right after that happens, it says, they left rejoicing. They left joyful to be counted worthy of suffering. So the final point that I have, why it feels like we're losing the battle for darkness against darkness, is because our suffering is proof when it should be a privilege. Our suffering is proof when it should be a privilege. What do I mean by that? I mean that we weaponize the suffering that we experience in this life. I mean that for some of us, the things that we're going through become proof that God doesn't love us, or that God's not with us, or that God's not for us. Or maybe you get so in your head like I do, I overthink everything where I'm like, well, God loves me, so I must have done something wrong because he's actually disciplining me. And you start doing this thing where all of a sudden your suffering becomes proof that maybe you're losing the fight against the enemy. You start feeling like it's not a privilege. What does that mean? Suffering being a privilege? What if Jesus actually entrusted to you your pain? What if the thing that you're going through right now is actually entrusted to you to be the one to steward it for God's glory? Because look at the apostles. You know what they didn't do? They did not take their flogging as proof that the enemy was winning. They considered it a privilege to suffer for the name of Jesus. And the only way I can think about the way that they arrived at that conclusion is they watched Jesus himself do it. See, only Jesus could take the pain and the suffering, let's say a crown of thorns, and make them his crown for life. Only Jesus could take 
Good Friday, death on a Friday, and turned it into Resurrection Sunday. Only Jesus could take the ultimate symbol of death, the cross, and make it the way to eternal life. Only Jesus could do all that. So then when they stepped in to their moment, it was like they were hearing Jesus say, this is your time. Because he said, actually, blessed are you who suffer for my name. And they're experiencing that, and they're like, oh, I'm being blessed. Every lash is a blessing. And so for us, I think so many times we get so stuck in our situation, but what if the pain, the circumstance, the trial isn't proof that the darkness is winning your story, but rather privilege that has been entrusted to you by the God of the entire story? Think about this. What if? How do I hold in two realities the fact that God is good, but also there is suffering and evil in this world? So don't mishear me and say that God causes pain or God causes suffering. No, no, no. God is in fact so good that he can transform your pain, transform the enemy's attacks on your life to be bringing about your greatest good and his glory. Isn't it amazing that we get to step into a life and not live this selfish victim mentality of our world? Think about that. Isn't it amazing that I get to live from the victory that Jesus purchased for me with his blood on the cross? You and I are invited into a relationship where this is the worst you got. Bring it on, enemy. This is all you can do to me? Bring it on. And so for me, I just want to ask you the question. Maybe, just maybe, this is a time to offer yourself up and say the suffering and the pain that I'm going through is for Jesus. So last week, if you were here, we talked about miracles, if you remember that. And I was dumbfounded by a response from a lady in our church as she came up for prayer. And she came up and she talked about the fact that she had uh, terminal cancer. And she's fighting this terminal cancer Yet she was struggling with praying to God to heal her. She was struggling with praying for the miracle of her healing because she was watching God move in and through her family in the pain. What a Christian paradox. God, I actually don't know if I want you to heal me from this terminal cancer because I'm watching it completely transform everyone around me. I know I'm going to end up in heaven with you anyways. Let me keep fighting. What a perspective. And so, if there's anything that I could share with you today, there's a message that I have lived more than I've, again, prepared for you. And uh, it's this phrase that I've learned the past three months. Suffering is a privilege. Suffering is a privilege. I'm not just saying that because I believe it's in the scriptures. I'm saying that because I've seen it. And so I kind of want to just end our time with talking about the thing that Cheryl said, that my face was actually shattered. And so we were on that mission trip three months ago. And as we went on this mission trip, there was a group of about 20 students, and we all arrive or are going to Quito, Ecuador. And we're going there to work with an organization called Dunamis, which actually gets its name from Acts 1-8, where it says you will receive power to be my witnesses. It's a reference to Dunamis. That power is this explosive nature of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so they work as a uh, human trafficking organization to save girls out of some of the worst situations you can even imagine. And what they do, their plan, is Jesus. They introduce them to Jesus, and all of a sudden, they watch the Holy Spirit go to work. And so we're supposed to go in as this group of people, and I have never felt the level of spiritual oppression like I did in the weeks leading up to this trip. So much so that even one of the girls on our trip had some, some pain in her stomach. She went to the ER. Come to find out, she has a mass the size of a watermelon in her. She has to get emergency surgery taken out, doesn't get to come on the trip. We arrive at the airport. We're almost at our gate. We're about to board the flight. And one of the girls on our team is like, hey, I'm going to go grab a snack real quick for the plane. As she's walking away to go grab a snack, not even 50 feet from our gate, she collapses and has an epileptic seizure right before we're getting on the plane. 
Needless to say, we were getting on that plane with spiritual warfare on our hearts. And so we get on that plane. We arrive, come to find out. That week, a girl had given her life to Jesus as a part of this uh, organization. One of the girls had given her life to Jesus. But the day we arrived, the organization had gotten some pictures of sacrificed animals because that girl had been devoted to a demon and the villagers were mad and they were trying to get her back and they were cursing the ministry of Dunamis. We step off the plane, walking into that. And I gotta tell you, that first night, we went to war on our knees. We prayed like I've never prayed. Our team together for two or three hours, man, we were going to battle with darkness. So much so that I could barely sleep that night And so I woke up super early. I don't know why, but I was just like fired up and excited. And the way that this organization has protection is they have these giant concrete walls that kind of surround the entire property. And so I get up super early and I'm walking these walls and I'm praying this verse from Isaiah. Super excited about it. I'm praying this verse. It's like, your your walls are salvation and your gates are praise. And I'm like, Jesus wins. You're coming. You're going to do all these amazing things. And I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm excited. And so as we meet together the next morning, I think I got a picture of it. I open my Bible and I read Isaiah 61. Because this is what Jesus reads on the back end of fighting the devil. He's in the wilderness. He comes back. He walks into the temple. He picks up a scroll, and it's Isaiah 61. I want you to just think about I read this over our team before our first day. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I was like, come on, Jesus, let's go, right? Everybody hands in. Jesus wins. Yay, okay? I go join the fence team. Pretty excited about it. Join the fence team, and the point is we're having to bring out these massive concrete posts and and replace them. And so as we're replacing these posts, There's this guy on this Polaris, on this UTV, he's going around just picking up the posts, and it's pretty difficult for him to do it. He's an Ecuadorian worker, and there's one post at the bottom of the mountain. And so I think to myself, okay, this is great. I'll just ride down with him. So I was like, hey, man, I'll jump on with you. And the college guy's next to me, and he's like, I'll jump on too. So I jump on with this guy, and I'm in the middle seat, and the other guy's next to me, and then there's the driver. And as we take off down that mountain, I find out later what happened. But as we're going down this mountain... We start going faster and faster and faster. We hit about 25 miles an hour. When out of nowhere, the, the worker told me he didn't know how this happened, but his wheel just cocks right, going 25 miles an hour. And instead, he starts to lose control, and instead of hitting the brakes, he hits the gas. So he cocks right, hits the gas, and we launch off in this Polaris and hit this concrete wall head on. The guy on my right had something to hold on to. The guy on my left had something to hold on to. As we're approaching this wall, I have nothing to hold on to. So as we hit, my face goes straight into the dash of the car. And it was like the enemy was saying, shut up. Shut up. The darkness is going to win. This moment happens. And I just to finish, I, I somehow miraculously didn't lose consciousness. So I fall out to the left, and I'm, I can tell I'm pouring blood, and my face, I can tell, is crushed in, and a guy comes around me. Come to find out, the guy next to me was in nursing school, one of the students. He's barking orders at me. You're going to make it through. I was, oh, yeah. I can feel his energy. And he starts carrying me back up with a couple other guys, and we make it to the top of the mountain. We get in a van. A guy on staff named Merrick holds my neck because I thought I broke it through an hour-long bumpy drive down a mountain in Ecuador. We go to the first ER, they won't take me because they're like, we can't help you. We go to the second ER and I arrive. Meanwhile, while all this has happened, 
happening, my wife gets a call from a very excited person on our team that says, I don't know what happened, but I think Gage fell off a cliff. I think he's still alive, but it's okay. We don't know yet. We don't know anything. That's all she hears, right? So then I'm laying there in the hospital bed, and I hear my friend uh, Merrick's like, hey, uh, your wife thought you fell off a cliff, so we need to send her a picture. So he takes a picture of me, and he says, this is so bad that uh, I can't send it to her. So like, give me a thumbs up or something. So this is what I sent her. I have a picture. (laughs) Thumbs up. I was good. I was still alive. And what you can't see in that picture is the miracles that I broke both of these bones, yet not enough to sever my optic nerve so I could still see. Or I hit my face hard enough on the dash, but I didn't lose consciousness. I didn't even have a brain bleed. I didn't have any things to my memory. My, my neck whip, ricocheted back. I had whiplash, yet I didn't break any bones in my neck. I still have teeth. I can still smile, I can still laugh, I can still teach, I can still pray, I can still believe, I can still preach, I can still stand up here, I can still believe that Jesus wins, I can still be a father to my kids, I can still be a husband to my wife, I can still love my family. And the message that I got is that Jesus wins. He wins. And every bit of suffering that I experienced is suffering against the enemy. So to finish the story, because I know some of you are curious what happened, I broke two fingers, I fractured most of the bones in my face, I broke my nose, most of, uh, again, my, my cheeks, stitches in multiple places. I had to wait a whole day to fly back to the States because I just couldn't find a flight. And uh, when I got back into the United States, customs wouldn't let me through because I didn't look anything like my passport. So I had to go to the police station and they just wanted to hear the story of who I fought, but I was fine. And I went to University of Alabama, Birmingham, UAB. And I went to Birmingham, shout out to Birmingham, Dr. Kiner and Damling and their whole staff, they were incredible. And they had six procedures done to my face to rebuild my entire face. That happened three months ago. And I'm standing here today to tell you once again that Jesus wins. And um, there's a picture I think of my face now I can put up there. That's what it looks like. Every circle is a screw. So there's over 30 screws in my face right now. There's over five plates. I had to have two months of metal braces to make sure that my jaw would stabilize. A guy in my small group told me that uh, I got more metal than a pawn shop. Um, I can't wait to see how TSA goes in the airport next time I go through, but. So think back to the day this building opened, Acts 1-8, you will be my witnesses. You know what that word is? Martus. It's martyr. You will witness this unto death. Dunamis, you will receive power. So just to recap, again, that morning, there was a picture of me preaching Isaiah 61, if you remember. That was that morning. Well, because I couldn't go home till the next day, this was me that night. And if I lost you in the details of a story you don't really care about, come back to me. I just want to speak to you because I want to tell you what I got to tell that group of college students that night. And it's that Jesus is real. He's real. And my face being shattered wasn't proof that the enemy was winning. 
it was a reminder to me that the enemy had already lost. And it was a privilege. It was a privilege to sit there and share about Jesus and tell people that following Jesus It's not about gaining a huge social media following. It's not about getting enough money so your 10% looks better. It's not about even doing all of the right things. Following Jesus is about pre-deciding what to do with your pain. Am I going to suffer for my name? Man, that's not worth it. That's a life wasted. Or am I going to have the invitation from Jesus to suffer for his name? Man, that's a life worth living. That's worthy of everything, every ounce of pain. And I was sitting there with that broken face thinking to myself, almost smiling, laughing. This is the worst the enemy can do to me. Right now, you and your situation and what you're going through right now, it could be the worst the enemy could do to you. That's all he's got. He can't take your hope. He can't take your pain. The pain that means full life and understanding. He can't take your joy. He can't take your soul. He can't take your satisfaction. He can't take away heaven from you. He can't take away Jesus Christ from your life. I consider it all garbage, loss, compared to knowing Jesus. Man, what kingdom do you want to live for? Because suffering is an invitation, and maybe yours right now is the invitation to you into more of God. And so for me, I was just thinking about this. Fun fact, I was actually not supposed to preach this passage. I was actually supposed to preach last week's passage. And then Miles uh, called me and said, hey, I want you to move back to this one. And I was actually mad at first because I was like, I got miracle stories. This is going to be amazing. And I started reading the passage. And as I got to verse 41, which talks about the privilege to suffer, I almost fell out of my chair because I could not believe the words that I was reading on the page. And the reason being is because right after that moment where I sent a thumbs up picture to my wife and I was laying there, all the adrenaline of shock had worn off. I hadn't gotten any pain meds left and I was hurting, hurting. I just remember saying, God, help me, help me, help me. I can't explain it to you, but life believers might know what I'm talking about. But there was this rush, sensation of joy over me, this feeling of peace that passes understanding, and I felt, I felt the Spirit of God say to me, in my spirit, I considered you worthy of this. I consider you worthy of this. You're my man. You're my soldier. You're a pastor. Give people your pain. And so I just want to look at some of you and say that as you're fighting cancer, you were considered worthy of this. As you're fighting suicidal thoughts, you were considered worthy of this. You have a God who sees you in that situation, in that pain. As you're fighting with your sexuality and your purity, you have a God who considers you worthy. The way I know that is because you can tell the value of someone by how much they're willing to pay for it. And God the Father said, my son, that's how worthy 
That's how much value I see. So for some of you today who've been riding the fence, looking at this story and you're hearing, I don't know if I'm ready. Maybe you're fighting against God and God's invitation to you is come back. Come back to me. Because the suffering in this life is just the worst the enemy can do. And maybe it's preparing for you the eternal weight of glory, the reward and treasure. And so as I was thinking about this, Gamaliel, did you know, he was the teacher of Paul, right? That whole time that I was saying those verses, I was thinking Paul was the one who wrote this until I read this. And I thought to myself, what if, what if Paul wrote Philippians with Peter in his mind? Because he was sitting there with the Sanhedrin as this moment is happening, as the apostles are getting beaten and flogged, and he watches this group of men rejoicing as they leave, counted worthy of suffering. And Paul is sitting there at the time he was Saul. He has not been converted to Jesus yet. But I wonder, after he, was, he met Jesus, by the way, Jesus looks at him and says, I'm going to, you're gonna suffer a lot for my name. You remember this moment? I wonder if as Paul wrote these things, about suffering, he had Peter on his mind. And so my hope and my prayer for you today is that not that you leave talking about what's happened to me. My hope and my prayer today is that you meet with the living God and that the brokenness of a face, so what, would point you to the broken body of a savior who laid it all down for you so you could know your father. So you can go ahead and take out your communion set, your elements. Raise your hand if you don't have one. We're gonna remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Let's go ahead and raise it up. Whatever space you're in, we'll find you. Husbands, you're gonna pray over your wives in this time. I would just challenge you to think about what your family legacy should be, how you can pray to use the suffering in your situation. If you're not a believer in Jesus and you're still on the fence, I just wanna challenge you to throw that communion cup under your, set. This is, under your seat. This is something that we do as the family of God, one body. I was reminded this week, walking through these seats, there was multiple communion sets. They were still full underneath those seats. There's still people I know, you're still wondering if Jesus really is real, he is. And he wants to win your story. This is a great time for you to repent and believe. So to close our time, before we go into communion, I just wanted to read the words of Paul over us. Philippians 3 says, "'For as I have often told you before, "'and I'll tell you again, even with tears.'" Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So take this time to reflect on the body of Jesus and we'll come back and worship together.